This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast where I endeavor to host conversations and share reflections around a full-spectrum spirituality. And in today's episode, I'm really happy and excited and honored to be hosting a conversation with two spiritual friends of mine. Um, Their names are Linda Madero and Nellie Coffer, and they have co-authored a new book on meditation called Reflective Meditation, Cultivating Kindness and Compassion in the Buddha's Company. And um, I should first say transparently that I've endorsed the book and that Linda herself is a a mentor to me in in my own meditation teaching development. So um, I am very excited about this book because reflective meditation, and and as you'll hear in the conversation today and in future conversations I host with Linda and Nellie, Reflective meditation is a complementary or um, maybe just another articulation of an approach to meditation that I've been exploring myself, uh, loosely calling it yin meditation. So if you're a yin yoga practitioner, if you've been dabbling in yin meditation at all with me, I think you're going to really find this book helpful. Um, On one level, on one front, the book is a very great and accessible way explanation of how to integrate reflective meditative practices into your ongoing meditation practice. But it's not just that. The book is also, the way Nellie and Linda wrote it, as you'll hear in the interview, the way they wrote this is is as a conversation between the two of them. And there's something um, very, very engaging about this style of writing, where you're reading a, a conversation between two deep practitioners in their own right, but in conversation with each other, with a a great deal of uh, spiritual friendship, and you can feel those spiritual friendship bonds between them in the book. Um, And that really makes the content of the book and the approach to the book really come alive, I think. Um, But thirdly, as the subtitle of In the Company of the Buddha suggests, their own practice and their own wisdom is deeply rooted and informed by early Buddhist teachings. And so there's something about the reflective style of practice, the conversational uh, dynamic between the two authors, Linda and Nellie, and their rootedness in Buddhism that I think is a very fresh contribution to um, our library of contemporary Dharma books. So I want to highly recommend it to anyone that's been a fan of this podcast or a fan of yin yoga or a fan of yin meditation. I think you'll be a fan of this book. And one of the things is that they, they, Nellie and Linda speak a lot about the, the language of experience. And Sharon Salzberg, one of the founders of the Insight Meditation Society, says that about reflective meditation in her endorsement of the book. She says, reflective meditation told through conversations and shared voices helps shape the language of experience. And developing this shared language of experience really helps practitioners, I think, get closer and closer to what's actually happening for them in their practice and helps them work with, uh, understand, and develop insight around the nature of experience in practice. So this is a great contribution, again, to the the literature of meditation and to the, the, the various approaches that we might mobilize as we get closer to understanding our hearts and minds. So I highly recommend this book. There's a link for you in the show notes for how you can order your own copy. Um, This book is getting published in New Zealand, and I believe it's going to be available in, you know, in United States or North America, Europe, somewhere around mid to late February. But there's information for all of that in the link through the publisher in the show notes. So go check that out. There's also a free downloadable taste of the book, so you can sample it um, through the publisher's, publisher's site. I also include the links to both Linda and Nellie's personal websites for their personal sanghas, the Sati Sangha and the Pine Street Sangha. Do check those out. And without further ado, it's a pleasure to bring you Linda Madero and Nellie Koffer in a conversation about reflective meditation. Today, I am with Linda Madero and Nellie Coffer. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Nice to be My with pleasure. you. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah. So first out of the gate, I have to say this is an honor. This is the first time I'm having two guests on the show. And 
Um, I know Linda very well, uh, and Nelly, I've, no, I've known you for a bit here and there, um, but you're both, I would consider, meditative friends of mine. You're both meditation teachers with very interesting backgrounds. And I'd, I say the the maybe the instigation for you to come on the show is that you've both written this wonderful new book on meditation called Reflective Awareness, or sorry, Reflective Meditation, if I have, if I have the name Correct. So reflective meditation. I always stumble when there's a digital book because it, you know, I don't see it in front of my face the whole time. Um, and so we we have set up and set the intention to have a, an informal series or, or a series of conversations about themes in the book, themes about meditation practice, how you think about uh, facilitating groups and supporting students in their practice what develops in your style of meditation and um, and how ultimately folks discover and connect with the Dharma through this process that you're describing in the book. Um, and to listeners uh, that are familiar with, you know, my teaching of meditation, I would say we're, we're, we're really from the same branch of the same tree in a way we're, we're we both teach it. I think a very open ended uh, receptively based uh, creative style of practice and that's what I loved about reflective reflective meditation. Your book is that it was like listening to two very wise friends in, and teachers in conversation about practice. And being in that vein myself, it was like I was just all these insights and, and connections and phrases that you have and, and the language you bring really started to touch me uh, deeply. And um, I just think it's a it's great to see this voice of contribution to the, the literature around meditation practice. And so just warmly welcome to, have, to both of you to be here. Well, your introduction touched me, Josh. That's just what I had hoped for in writing this book, just what you said, and that it would touch you and that it would stir up things within you and other readers, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We want to have conversations, too. In fact, this is like um, actually like a continuation of the book to have more con um, conversations that come from people reading it, and especially with friends and then for other friends to take those conversations into their friends groups and have it grow more organically like that. Yeah. So you guys teach together now. What's give me a little bit of a sense of what what you're up to? Uh, how did how did this book come to be, and, and and how are you teaching now? And I don't know who wants to take that. I, this is where I'm I'm learning my learning as we go. Uh, right, you, Nelly. Why don't you start? Okay. Oh. Well, so we each have our own um, sanghas. We each have our own nonprofits, and we teach within that. Um, Linda has Sati Sangha, and I have Pine Street Sangha. Linda's based online. I'm based in Portland, Oregon. However, then the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, as we all know, that changed a lot in a lot of different ways. And so what that is like on March 17th, 2020, um, well, probably about March uh, 10th or something, I said to Linda, let's start a daily online meditation. And so we did. And we've been doing it every day since. And um, and so that brought us together in mm -hmm. a new kind of way. Mm -hmm. Take right. it from there, Linda. Right. I, I mean, informally, uh, we call it a PT Sangha. Like the, a lot of joy came from our combining our Sanghas. And this daily online meditation group is continuing to um, meet daily, almost three years later. Here we are. Um, and that um, part of what I, I've felt is like, that's where the book got born um, because we started to have to teach daily, to mm -hmm. talk daily. And we started to have conversations. And then um, when we were asked to write the book by Two Furry Publishing, um, we thought, oh, we'll just transcribe some of our conversations and some of the ways we talk together. But no, we actually <laughs> wrote a whole nother book. Uh, we had a whole nother conversation in us. Well, I think what happened, I mean, I, I this is not well thought through, but when we actually came back to the talks that were whatever, six months ago or whatever, um, they were dry. We couldn't just transcribe mm -hmm. them. We needed something that was more alive uh, or more, you know, pre in the present, what was happening right then and there. And 
So it was, this was so fun. What we did, it was just it was. evolved. It, it, this just evolved. I don't even know how it evolved. I can't recall, but we always meet on zoom. We've been meeting on zoom seemingly forever once, once a week or more. And so we started to just meet on zoom, open a Google doc and start writing to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And because you can share the doc, right? I would write something, Nellie would respond, and there it was. The conversation was just being transcribed, written out for us. And that was the easiest part of the book, that those conversations, they would just kind of flow out from us, and then we would edit them a little bit and place them in um, a certain arrangement. And it was really exciting to do that. It felt like, again, like something new was born. Yeah, Yeah. no, I, you're describing it, how, you know, the merger, during the pandemic and then the consistency of daily practice and teaching um particularly together i can i can it's sort of a crucible i can see how that would forge you know a new synthesis or a new uh, sense of things um and you know as you're as you guys are talking about your process and the writing and i and i love how i could sense how that came together um i want to just add kind of like a like a, a literary perspective for a second that people might not know until they read it it's that you're you're sharing a dialogue that you're having and it it gets quite you're weaving very personal stories with i would say more meta dharma themes Mm -hmm. and yet you intentionally shield the reader from who's speaking and i thought that was i was i thought that was very interesting and very clever It, it just because um, you get the the specific of the individual voice, but the, but it's 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 not showcasing the individual so much. It's 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 opening up the universal through the unique experience of the individual. I thought, um, and I just thought that the way you don't reveal who's speaking at any given time, but it's still a conversation. You sort of let that fade back of like being concerned with who's speaking, and just take the heart of the matter in. Um, and I don't know if you had anything to respond to about that, but I just thought it was an interesting device. It was a very interesting device. Well, that that has um, pretty much emerged from our work together and from us leaning in a kind of student-centric teaching where the voices are more equalized or more a part of the conversation and rather than just the teacher's voice being dominant. Mm-hmm. And in one point, I think Nellie, you and you and I, we both thought this is an experience of anatta, of a not self, like on a larger level. Um, because when Nellie wrote, I would go, Oh, I could have said that. And then <laughs> and then we forgot who said things, right, Nellie? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly where I went in my mind. Yeah, like, was that you or was that me? And of course, there are those deeply personal stories that we've weave throughout um and so we of course know who's who there but with the more dharma points or more general understandings um yeah i mean we just we don't remember who owned it well i realized that it actually it creates a little bit of my ambiguity about pitching questions here <laughs> because uh, i can't say nelly like you said in the book can you fall can you can we drill into that and linda i know that point you brought up that was really tragic. i can't really do that so um you know, one question that is there, though, is, you know, when we when I met you both, I met you coming into a, a style of practice, which you've clearly taken and developed into your own form. Um, but it, I would say it was a, it's a style of practice that for me, functionally cor- corrected many of the the energies of meditative practice that were really tying me up in knots, namely striving, like pushing, trying to get somewhere, trying to attain something specific. Um, And so there was a kind of a course correction I took when I came to the softer, more receptive approach. Um, But I'm just curious, like, I know a little bit about Linda's background, but for the record, you know, here, where were you both coming to coming from in your own spiritual path? Um, and we can take start with either one. I don't know if you want to raise your hand. Okay, Linda's pointing at Nellie. So Nellie can start with her path <laughs> and then we'll pass it over to Linda. But I'm just curious about like, how did you come to this approach? And then we'll get into what the approach actually uh, involves. 
Okay. Um, of course, that's a long story because I started meditating in 1978. So, you know, it is a long story. So um, let's see if I pick up the highlights. Um, I, I came to practice um, and as soon, the first meditation retreat, I heard the Dharma. I knew, I knew I'd heard something that you know, I've been waiting to waiting to hear. And where um, was that? And who is that with? I'm just curious. Okay, well, that's that's a great story. This, so it was um, in Southern Oregon on a piece of lesbian land that I had lived on. And so Ruth Dennison came. She was invited by my dear friend and the co-author of my previous book that was published in the 1990s, A Woman's Guide to Spiritual Renewal. Hmm. So Carol Newhouse and I, good friends, um, she finds Ruth Dennison at um, in Barry. She goes to um, Insight Meditation Society, searching for a woman teacher. No women Buddhist teachers to be found, and Ruth was the one. And mm. she found her, and she um, had a strong kinship with her. And she said, "Would you come to this place called Woman Share?" And so Ruth did. And so Ruth developed a a strong following with les with the lesbian community, at least the um, Oregon women's lesbian community, um, and so that's who my first teacher was. And um, and was her background? I mean, I, I I when I went to IMS myself, Insight Meditation, I often heard her name. I think she was still teaching when I showed up, but I never got mm-hmm. on a retreat with her. But there, she had, I know she had a, an extremely loyal and devoted following. But I seem to remember, and I can't quite remember which tradition she was rooted in was it one of the Burmese systems yeah yeah her teacher was Uba Kin okay yeah so she was you know and that was also Gawinka's teacher so that's an interesting mm-hmm. sideline I'd say exactly um, but I'm, I'm planting the flag on that just because because where you are now I imagine is quite a bit far away from where you begin that's that, yes. that's the that's that's the arc i'm trying to get to hopefully, hopefully in this many decades i would have developed from where i from once i started yeah. um but ruth was a very um let's say we weren't well well fit her and i um she was um german she'd been in the hitler youth and she was teaching in many ways to clean her karma and she taught until the day she could no longer teach um, but um, after the first retreat, uh, she the retreat ends and she, we're, we're talking, we're up on this hillside, just, darlings, darlings, this is just like the Hitler Youth. It's wonderful, just like it was. So scared the shit out of me as a, as a young Jewish woman. <laughs> and she was both, she was a very traumatized woman. She had been um, gang raped by the Russians when they, after the Germans lost the war, she um, and so she was a very traumatized woman. And so she would alternate between being the most loving, kind teacher and then being, you know, just kind of Germanically harsh, very harsh and at times mean even. Mm-hmm. So um, I love the Dharma and she challenged me. I've had some experiences like that. I can relate. But that and sounds it goes right but... to the striving. It fed my striving, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and so, and and so take me take me through the next few decades. Okay. <laughs> uh, so then I actually I found Jacqueline Mandel. So I'm searching for women teachers too. I can't. Uh-huh. I'm a lesbian separatist at this time. There's no way I'm going to learn from a man. That's not where I'm at. Um, so oh, let me backtrack. I began teaching super early. I began teaching about a year after I began practicing, and the reason I did that was because there were no women teachers, and none of my friends would go to same old same story. So I started to teach, mm-hmm. and I've been teaching ever since. So um, that's that's one arc. Yeah, and if maybe one more log there is you're also a. A psychotherapist. Is I'm so saying. okay, yeah. So I'm starting to teach the Dharma, and I love it. I love it, and I realize there's no way I'm going to be able to support myself. And um, you know, sort of, I'm, I was very downwardly mobile. I had very little money. I needed to get out of that. I saw that that would not sustain me as I grew older. And so I went back to graduate school. I found there was this thing called transpersonal psychology. I was so excited. So I went back to graduate school. I ended up, I wrote my own program. That kind of follows with the book, right? You know, here I am not willing to follow the (laughs) usual. um, I was able to write my own program through Antioch, but I mostly went to California Institute of Integral Studies and Integrated Buddhism. 
in psychotherapy. And I've been doing that ever since. And that really goes back to something I forgot to say earlier, which is that I sort of, with Linda and I, I sort of, I teach the continuing education program to psychotherapists through Pine Street Sangha. I teach it and I teach teachers to teach it. And Linda teaches Dharma teachers. And of course, we both teach whoever whoever appears. But um, so we made that conscious split several mm-hmm. years back. Yeah, so interesting. That I, I wrote down transpersonal psych as, a, as something to come back to because I'm interested where that is. I was very interested in transpersonal psychology at one point, considering a very similar path to what you went down. Um, didn't ultimately go there, but uh, still very interested in it. And I'd be curious. I don't think it really came up in the book so much. Um, and I'd be curious where you sit with that in relationship to your approach to practice now. Um, but that we, we can we can shelve that for for the moment and maybe pass the the talking stick over to Linda. And, and Linda, you're I'm more familiar with your background, mm-hmm. um, but um, I'd love to hear. You know, I know you've. You're an acupuncturist, you're a Qigong teacher for many years. And so where, where would you like to start in with, with introducing yourself in terms of your own journey? Well, I, I think I would start with the near-death experience. And that happened while I was an acupuncturist and a Qigong teacher and um, had an ectopic pregnancy that ruptured and almost lost my life and had one of those kind of um experiences which i couldn't integrate in the practices that i was doing so i went searching again as a young spiritual seeker i had had a few past lives so to speak Um, and when i found buddhism it started to help me integrate that experience i I was um, in an open and receptive approach at that time so i didn't have a lot of the um, history that Nelly has of with another tradition um, in Buddhism. Um, so the the practice that I I learned and um, basically helped me integrate was was more psychological, like more psychologically oriented. Um, so it actually helped me look at how my mind was um, working. Um, it allowed thinking and. Um, it wasn't just so body-based. It really brought in another uh, part of um, my psyche that mm. was missing in the other practices. So I, I basically um, was in another practice um, for, gosh, about 15, 16 years before uh, Nellie and I started um, our own sanghas and our own nonprofits. And Sati Sangha is really something, it's you know kind of my first um, imprint, uh, something that has my own kind of propensities in it. And um, with that, um, I have a, a board of or a council of friends that actually help guide me um, in making decisions. And I think one of the most satisfying things about practice now for me is that I'm not alone in it mm-hmm. um, and that I really do have uh, long-term spiritual friendships um, that we collectively make decisions. And occasionally I have to make the hard decisions, um, but then I have Nellie. So it's it's just gone in a really, uh, a really good direction, um, my practice and surprisingly and surprising. You know, as, as you're both speaking, I'm remembering more from the book. I read the book, I finished it a couple of weeks ago, so it's not quite as fresh in my memory, but um, I really enjoyed it. And one of the things I found happening for me as I read it was in the way you both shared your stories, your experiences, it, in a way, it just shed light on me understanding myself more mm-hmm. clearly. And I know that's a kind of a feature of how you guys teach, um, but, you know, so just it, it, with Nelly, how you just said you went your first retreat and you knew you you found the Dharma and that's what you wanted to do. Like that, there was like this is what you want. And I had that same experience. It was the first retreat. I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for for countless lifetimes, it seems. <laughs> and here it is. And yet I had no idea how to support myself. So I took a, I would say I took I, the best day career gig I could find, which was going to acupuncture school and becoming an acupuncturist as a way of supporting myself, much like a you know, a starving artist is going to get, you know, a job to just pay bills and put money, put food on the table. Um, 
But then, not to, with with your trajectory, Linda, you were uh, an acupuncturist with a thriving career in was it Venice, California? Is that where you were based? Uh, Santa Monica. Santa Monica. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and I know you mentioned in the book, and I don't want to like put words in your mouth or, or get it wrong, but it, it, it sounds like when you really took to the Dharma yourself, you were drawn to to leave that sort of quote unquote successful career behind and, and really take on a more vulnerable, fragile career. And and I just want to maybe speak, have you speak to that a little bit, because that I've also done something similar. Like I, I left more secure yeah. positions and, and now waiting in these right. or sailing in these more uh, uncharted waters. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think it speaks to how um, similarly what Nellie and you were talking about of how, when you meet the Dharma and hear it, how it impacts you and you can't unknow it. Like it was like almost, I wouldn't say this exactly, but it was almost like I didn't have a choice. I just wanted to teach and learn and follow the Dharma. And how was that going to um, manifest like you guys had done years before, um, I kind of had to figure that out. Um, And believe me, everybody wasn't so happy with my decision. Um, because <laughs> leaving a lucrative career to go to work on Donna, which at that time we had no kind of suggested Donna. It was just like hope, you know, cross your fingers. Um, that um, let me just, let me, for <laughs> folks listening, Donna, the word you just used means generosity. So yes. it's, you're not getting a, a recurring payment. You're, you're getting generous donations when they, whenever they come through. Right. And unlike monks in Asia, we're not supported. I mean, the U.S. doesn't support a Donna system and you couldn't give me socks or food. I mean, it's about money, actually. That's the thing is to support me to continue practicing. And that um, that took a long time to develop. Um, And in my case, I feel really blessed that it did. But I also had to have other large supporters like my husband. Um, who is continuing to be an acupuncturist to support me so that I can actually do this I mean, for other reasons too, but it supports mm-hmm. my being able to teach the Dharma. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear from you both. Uh, I have another question on deck, but I'd be curious to hear from you both about that decision around teaching the Dharma because it, you feel like you said you didn't feel like you had a choice in a way, um, but it does it feel like it's the, the best use of your this precious life in a way i mean the way i think about it there's so many things i could do to support myself but when i now that i know that what the dharma is and i know what it what the impact it has on individual suffering collective suffering it was like this is the most direct way i can maximize i think the best good of of my energy with with, with the life energy that i have that's how I would put it. But does that does that speak to some part of what, what, what you were getting at? Yeah, let me. Um, I, I I think it's I, I experience it a bit differently, um, which is that I think I just know what I have to do. And I think that's the development of intuition, actually. I just like this is what I'm supposed to do. And like it's almost like you're, you know, walking down a, a a street and like that's you just got to keep going down that street there's a ditch on either side and you don't want to fall in the ditch which would be i guess using your life not well in your words mm-hmm. um but i just kind of you know this is this is where the energy is this is where i'm being pulled mm-hmm. um I, I, it's kind of a woo woo description but that's my experience that actually feels pretty down to earth, Nellie, not wanting yeah. to go into the ditch. Um, <laughs> I really like that. Um, because, you know, in that sense, that's, I kind of have talked about it like a calling, like I'm, I'm drawn to something, I'm called to to do something. And it, it's not necessarily a voice, but it is a following. I'm following something, you know, inner. Um, I think the hardest part for me was to make that a priority over what other people expected of my life. And that's still an ongoing thing for me because I have family, I have large family, and I have other people in my life who have opinions about where the use of my time could be um, better used. 
so it was a, I think it was a, a big decision in a, in a sense, even without a choice, but to follow it mm-hmm. and to really say, that's where I want to put my energy that, and that's where I see I can do the most good, most comprehensive good, Josh, how you kind of talked about it. It's like yeah. larger good in, in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I get that. And the, you know, there was in that move to being a Dharma teacher, uh, particularly, you know, was it March 17th, 2020, when it, we were aware that the, the tsunami of the pandemic was hitting us all, um, used one phrase. I, I think it may have been Linda. Again, I can't tell because you weren't letting <laughs> us know who's writing what. But there was a phrase of a life jacket and the life jacket that your sangha provided you. And I have been feeling similar tones of gratitude for the students that Terry, my partner, and I have in terms of their support of us through these incredibly rocky, unpredictable times. Um, but you're, there really is a, a sense that when we choose this direction, um, we're facing the elements completely you know, that, that are coming at us. And it, there's, there's very little buffer against some of these big shocks that come. And, and so I can only imagine the challenges that you've both been through in the last few years in terms of your own livelihood and maintaining that and figuring out how to adapt to the, and respond to these conditions. Um, so that was just a comment, but the, the, the question that's been forming, it actually looks back to uh, part of what Nellie shared around looking for a woman teacher and and the the sort of the lack of that availability when you were starting out in 1978 um and i think it ties into or definitely directly comes into something you make explicitly clear in the book around uh, a fem the word was a feministic a feministic approach is that the right correct it was, yeah it, we, that, 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 that word we took found that back. word in the dictionary so we looked it up <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was like has it someone studied sociology here i have nelly you yeah i forget to tell you <laughs> oh yeah actually i did an undergraduate school but it was so long ago <laughs> yeah. we're all on the same boat then um <laughs> But it, you know, it, I was curious around the, the decision to choose that word over feminine, for one, and and maybe that's a we, we're going to have more conversations about the books. So we don't have to, again feel like we need to get it all in. But that is there's a, there's a part of there's a piece to your approach that is trying to come from a, a feministic appro- uh, perspective, and um, I'd like to hear what what what. Um, well, what were you finding? What was not feministic about the systems and 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 sanghas you were in, and what 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 are you trying to uh, address in, in this approach? Before we quite I quite answer that question, I want to go um, just tell you a little bit about how we came up with that word, because I'm sort of having the same experience right now when someone from outside of our our world can reflect on what we're doing in a certain way that we are unable because we're right in the middle of it. Somebody um, in our sangha gave that word, you know, do you know that this is a very feminist approach that you're teaching? Oh, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. So then we really took her words to heart and um, we chose the word feministic rather than feminine or feminism partly just for this reason that it's not that common a word and so it doesn't have the baggage that goes with it Mm -hmm. there's so much baggage that goes with each of those words or ways people can feel excluded or or all all kinds of stuff so we chose a word that was kind of maybe not have quite as much baggage Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's that was a maybe that's what we're getting at is a, a little bit of a process that we go through um, I don't know. I feel like it's collaborative. I feel like we listen to each other. Not that that's exclusive, exclusively feministic, but there is a way that um, we we glom onto a word, we play with it, we go back and forth. What comes out of it, then we wait till we have some agreement on that. There is a kind of a sense that that collaboration is less 
part of the patriarchal Buddhism that we both were exposed to. Um, and bringing the word in feministic, again, like Nellie, I'm glad you really reminded me of that, that it wasn't even our word. It was one of our students. And that's how how integrated our sanghas have become is that, you know, that we're, we're really playing with each other. Um, you know, every voice counts kind of thing. So you said you're both, you both were uh, coming out of um, patriarchal sanghas or patriarchal systems. Yeah. And and so was I, 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 I grew up in that, that style too. Um, and so I, I think for, for this to, for, for listeners to resonate, I think they probably need to hear a little bit about the approach to meditation. And then that will lend to more light on how this approach to meditation would be, could be described as more feministic um, and, and, and what, how that is in contrast to more of a patriarchal style of meditation, if you will. Um, you, was there a question do you there? Think, well, I have a question. I mean, do you think either of you, do you think, um, having conversations is more feministic than being told or directed um, from a, a person? Well, it's certainly less top-down and it's certainly less hierarchical. And historically, the hierarchy has um, been guys at the top and women below that. So in that sense, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the sense that... Um, we're also putting emphasis on wanting to know what the other person thinks and feels and experiences and not telling them what they think, feel, or experience. To me, that feels feministic. That or feels sh- like... Or should think, feel, and yes, you yeah. know, not telling them what yeah. they should think should and feel. Should or and, do, yeah. Right. Like, there's a way that that has evolved to be like kind of a red flag when we get told what we should think or feel or um, Mm -hmm. how we should think or feel or do something that feels like a more uh, male dominated patriarchal kind of move, so to speak. And when that's absent, that does feel a little more feministic to us. And I have to say it comes out of my roots uh, back in the old, you know, 1970s when I lived on um, at this place, Woman Share. We did retreats and we did consciousness raising retreats. And so these women would come and we'd sit around in circles and we'd talk about whatever the theme was of that retreat, be it creativity, sex, spirituality. You know, we'd have different themes and the point of consciousness raising was like, let's listen to each other's experience. Let's sit around in a circle and listen to each other's experience. In many ways, that's what we're doing, but with more, well, I don't want to say more guidance than that, but with more, but we do provide guidance for what's going on in those, when we're sitting around in those Zoom circles or squares. Yeah, we have some structure. <laughs> yeah, we have some structure. Indeed. Well, let me, let me ask you about the, let me ask you about the structure because this conversation style that you're talking about um, where does that fit in within the meditative process for you? And then once, once you share this, like we lay out the structure of what you're following. Um, I'd be curious if we could, if you would be able to, if you're up to it, compare and contrast a kind of exchange where it might be more patriarchal style of teaching to what you are, are, are doing in more in terms of exploring what someone's experience is rather than telling them what they should, what their experience should be. Because I think that's, I, I can hear that, but I don't know if I would, how quickly or well I would recognize that happening. I might now, but I don't know if I would have in my early days of practice. For, for, do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so in this, where, where do you have the conversations in your, in your sessions? Well, uh, everywhere. And, <laughs> and then in some places we don't, right? I mean, let's say a a meditation instruction when we're basically doing a, you know, an introductory prompt or talk to a group. Mm -hmm. Um, Often that's not a discussion. Often we're saying a few words, we're bringing in our experience, we're uh, linking it up to the Dharma. Um, We're also really opening up the instructions and uh, having a lot of um, allowing people to do what they need to do to take care of themselves during the sitting, 
So that seems to me more like it's less discussionary at that time, right, Nellie? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's no, and like on the daily online, there's really no no time or space for that uh, because, you know, we give a short talk, we meditate for 30 minutes, reflect for 10. We only have 10 minutes left over. No time for some in-depth conversations like we're having now. Mm. Um, But I think of it, so there's that, but then we each have many or several ongoing groups, groups in my case at Pine Street that have been together sometimes for more than a decade. So these people have grown to know each other deeply through talking about their inner world and meditation. They are having conversations with one another. They're um, actually today, right now, some of them are taking a walk in the park right right near my house, uh, just coincidentally. So, and they're talking the Dharma as they're talking and walking. So that's, people find their places to have their conversations. We don't need to, as teachers structure that completely. But they kind of learned it, I would say, from us. I mean, in in some respects, when we first start off with people, we we need to be a little, I don't know if the word is strict or if I'm, we're talking about feministic mothers get strict at times, you know, um, but there's like a, a, a way that we cultivate and cure the conversation because we're trying to really protect people to go into their inner experience and speak honestly. And really with that fear, you know, um, of being labeled or the shame of what we experience in meditation when we think everybody else is having exalted states, that we really try to set it up so somebody can language their own experience. And if the teacher at that time has a very strong opinion or a, um, a strong even arm, they can squelch the person's words or they can try to reinterpret that as, oh, that's impermanence. Oh, and they try to name a teaching when really the person was giving a much more descriptive, fluid, kind of unique understanding of what their experience was. And we'd like to protect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the well, the word you just used with, that leapt out at me was shame, and the kind of the silencing effect that the experience of shame has in terms of how someone will voice or articulate their experience, um, and and I and I and I appreciate how you know I know this was in the book, and I, you're 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 kind of hitting on that note here, how a facilitator or teacher can I would say unintentionally activate that mm-hmm. shame by setting up certain ideals about the practice that then um, obstructs that the student or the practitioner from from really opening and understanding what's going on for themselves. You're not in your head there, Nelly. Well, um, it's it's so interesting. It's interesting. Um, I guess it's a paradox because to actually talk honestly about your inner world, uh, people hide that a lot. They don't feel good about what's going their inner world. They feel a lot of shame. So it can evoke shame to actually talk about it. So we have to carefully set up an environment that's as safe enough as possible. Not that that shame can be avoided because it's, it's in there, but it can be reflected upon you talked to we talk about in the book and we're going to get to I know in our conversations what develops so I'm jumping ahead a bit here but one of the things that I have that has developed for me strongly and I believe for others as well is that something about like airing your dirty laundry to use an overused cliche in front of people who care and don't see it as that um, and you can feel that that like changes everything that now you can just be curious about your inner world and that shame is not a a huge roadblock Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the biggest things that develops is that that shame but basically caring about yourself and you know right loving yourself even yeah and that's nelly even bringing that in is that we're not just learning as the person who's sharing their inner world the people who are listening to the other person's inner world is also developing a kindness, curiosity, compassion, and really 
looking at their own judgments that come up and then working with it through their practice. Not that it's about the other person. It's about what you are experiencing when you listen to somebody talk about um, their experience with such vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So this is, it feels to me like this is a kind of training that we do a little bit more tightly in our newer groups and that that's developed into these long-term conversations where people know how to respond to each other with care. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the conversational dimension of, and, the, and the, the dialogue that you facilitate and and how that's a way of further or, or deepening an exploration of inter, you know, inner worlds and, um, and energy there. I think as I'm, as I'm trying to listen to it from a, from a one step out, one thing that I think um, I would like you to speak to is the, maybe the instructions of the medita- reflective meditation itself, because uh even though I teach a kind of what I consider a receptive reflective style of meditation, it's going to be different from the way you voice it. And um, I think the, both of our approaches are so diametrically different from kind of garden variety styles of meditation that many people listening might even think this isn't even meditation. So, so what is it about the, the reflective style of, of practice that you, that you both teach um, that welcomes this these kind of deeper like more personal psychological interpersonal experiences into the meditation um and 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 then like all my friends would say that are deep in the the hardcore dharma world it's like well how does that all that cycle that's just story stuff that how is this leading to the dharma so i know we're going to get into all this this conversation or down down the road but (laughs) I th- you know what I'm saying? It's like, how is your approach to practice um, facilitating these conversations and how is the Dharma being found within it? And Go, Nellie. Oh, we're pointing both pointing at each other. <laughs> um, I'm not going to do a great job on this, but I'll go. Um, you know, it, I'm saying this a bit tongue in cheek, but in a sense, our instructions to meditation are get comfortable, sit down. But if sitting down isn't comfortable, then lay down. And um, close your eyes, but if closing your eyes is uncomfortable, keep your eyes open and um, just just see what happens. Now, of course, people would say, then that's just daydreaming and that's just ruminating, all these other things. And um, and those are, of course, very um, actually judgmental and very limited descriptions of it, um, very putting it in a box. Um so uh, that we're we're interested in in all of that and sort of loosening that up because those are very tight little things. Just rumination, just rumination. Well, mm-hmm. it might be that. Well, I'm not going to go there. But awareness might not. Might then we always always. I don't think we. I never don't have this as part of my structure in a group. We always take about ten minutes afterwards to write about and reflect if we want to or journal about what happened and in that way we start to develop more awareness right right Mm. right Nellie, you did a great job actually that was really lovely because i think you got to the let's say um uh the effort in is not in the sitting so much it's the reflection afterwards that's where we're giving a little bit more kind of let's say striving to what happened there what can i pull back what can i take notes on how can i describe my experience because we don't give a lot of instructions for how to sit around your posture around what you should be doing around what object you should focus on should you even focus um that type of thing so afterwards a person gets a chance to see where they went, what happened, and that organic process develops a type of awareness that brings them more present and current with their experience in their day-to-day life. How that works is a bit mysterious still to us, but it does seem that this after-awareness, which we, I would say, give a little bit more favor to, develops the present awareness in a kind of, um, I don't know what kind of way. 
Uh, organic, more organic than okay, really okay. trying, trying to make it happen. Like, yeah. because you spend this time, like going back on it, then, I mean, all, all, everything is reflection. We, you know, the way the right. brain works, we can't ever know exactly in the present moment. It takes a little while for the brain to register. So, you know, we just keep developing this capacity to be a little more aware of what passed, you know, um, one second ago, 10 minutes ago, 10 hours ago, whatever, 10 years ago. <laughs> and actually, you just you just said one of those like mind blowing things that um, when you really think about it, that even when you think you're in the present moment, you're still observing, yeah. you know, observing phenomena that disappeared a nanosecond ago it's all hindsight in a certain in a certain sense um so i just i that that that's mm-hmm. very interesting thing because it does contrast the normal perception of meditation that it's a practice of sitting down and developing in the moment presence and trying to sustain that as long as possible and when you're not fully present well you got to you know wrangle and 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 wrangle that monkey back into its come into back. submission exactly. yeah you have to come back and so you're i know in the book i, I wrote this down in my notebook somewhere you you describe your practice as a free range meditation practice and i love that it's free range mm-hmm. so um so i would i would imagine that people might think well anything can go you can do anything and is that well, tr- not anything? I mean, you can't shout, stand up and scream and shout in a room of people meditating. Sure. Um, but, you know, yeah, in some respects, it's true. Like if a person needs to get up, if they need to, you know, they have to stop um, that really that allowance of I'm putting air quotes around anything because I want to say anything within reason, um, yeah. which is different for each person, of course, but that that helps them learn their boundaries and capacities. I mean, that really, again, puts it back to it's their practice. And we're not really the authors of it or telling them, yes, no, we're exploring how this process is going with them. You're not telling them what's spiritually sanctioned. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Right. Which I think, we, I mean, I I hear that a lot. People are like, is this okay to do? Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Right, right. And we do um, have a, um, it's interesting. I, I was just listening to a podcast that Linda sent me. This is how we work together. Uh, the Sharon Salzberg did back in uh, a few months ago. Um, but, you know, I do, we, she talks about rather than ba- talking about basic goodness, that, that we have capacities. And I really liked that. We we are having people's a lot of faith or confidence in people's capacity to find a skillful way mm-hmm. to navigate through their meditation sitting. Anything doesn't go in a sense of, you know, some people could hit some places in their mind that are dangerous. Not mm-hmm. a good idea to go there now. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you could steer away, even get up, have a cup of tea, be done. So um but we have some confidence that there can be some um, way of, you know, no, learning that, knowing that, becoming more familiar with what is really skillful for you and you and you in your meditation and your meditation today, now. So what you just said would lead me to assume that what you're, the way you're framing this is that it's implicitly trauma informed. Like so, if if because this is the this is the buzz language now, everything's transformed, right. and um, <laughs> and so the, that that dynamic though, if something really some some scary avenue of of being shows up in the meditation, um, and you said you know you could get up and have a cup of tea, like that is just or just end the meditation just there. That, that's rarely suggested. I don't even think I even use that those those cues, which I'm. Mm grateful for you mentioning because it is important to just say there's a, there's the door you don't have to stay in this in this situation right um but back to what linda was saying i i feel like and having worked with this approach similar is that i hear you both saying that um the practitioner the student navigates their figures out how to navigate boundaries of what's okay with and based on their own internal thermostat you know their own in their own mm-hmm. sense of it like what, what can i metabolize what can i hold what can i be with and what what can't yeah. 
what I, what can I be with? Um, and then from that, so there's a sense of trust that comes like, oh, I can sit or I can't sit and and, and I have these options to to explore around it. Right. And I think that one thing that's developed is that that process gets seen by people that you can trust. And this is back to the dialogue and the way we run our groups is that people get a little bit more of a glimpse in how other people with different conditions and different life circumstances handle something and that they learn from hearing that. And then they try on some things that they're hearing. So again, the, all the instructions are not coming from us, um, that yeah. they're they're getting input from five or seven other people in a group that they trust and they 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 try different practices or they say this worked for me and 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 so this again just takes this i would say a sense of a, autonomy and one developing their own path as important as the buddha talked about i mean that is a you know a big tenant an attribute of the dharma that one makes it their own path mm-hmm. Did you want to add in on? Yeah, well, I just was going back to the anything goes, the paradox of anything goes, because <laughs> like, yeah, you can't get up and scream and you you find your own way. But also we are creating an, a structure mm-hmm. and we're pretty clear about that, where you're relatively still, where, you know, you're you're turning inward, where you're curious, where you're gentle and kind as much as you mm-hmm. can with your own experience so we're setting up quite an environment which is inherently safe i mean you know and in that quiet inwardness um certain other things develop that are uh that make it easier to tolerate hard stuff actually Mm -hmm. so as you're speaking it's resonating with a bit of writing i just did um i teach yin yoga and you know there's it's been around for uh, or revived, I should say, for three decades or so. And there's certain lists out there of like the three principles of yin yoga, the four principles of yin yoga. And um, uh, as I was writing, I or have been thinking through this, I've come up with my own four foundations with a deep nod to the Buddha himself, you know, the four foundations of yin yoga. But the two, two that the first and the last were safety, safety and creativity. And, and so it's it's a looser structure and maybe someone who doesn't know anything about yin yoga or doesn't know anything about reflective meditation would look at it from the outside and say, well, it's it's an anything goes, it doesn't really, it's not going, whatever happens, happens. It's, but there is, what you're pointing to is that there's there's a intentional structure that's just enough, and you didn't say this, but I'm wondering, to not get in the way or, or to be not so, come back to another word, not so patriarchal in terms of imposing correct experiences ideals to be attained um or or specifically top-down ways of responding to what's coming up but more receptive and democratically uh explored um understanding of what the experiences are that are coming up did i say that clearly yeah you did josh because i think where my mind went when you were talking is that our approach is not for everybody. And this methodology might, that seems maybe too loosey goosey or, you know, not enough. Somebody want really wants more direction, wants more lists, wants more step-by-step instructions. Um, they won't maybe do as well with this approach. Uh, yeah. And then occasionally, Nellie, I, I would say you do this too, is we give people a little bit more when they need more. You're not going to let somebody out there floundering in the Dharma desert, you know, and saying, find your own water. You know, uh, you're going to say, come here and drink. But that is a, I, I think something that I've learned to um, kind of accept is that let people find their way to this, maybe try it, leave, come back to it, or take it up and say this, you know, I, I have been looking for this my whole life, um, is that it it just won't be for everybody this time. And there's lots of Dharma approaches. That makes me really happy <laughs> that other people can go other places and, and get that more um, structured, you know, that I would say gets in my way. It got in my way. That's why I, we are doing this hmm. oh I, I i yeah there's hmm, there's a 
the the word guild came to mind. Um, yeah, I I had friends that were rolfers, and they were oh, yeah. often used the phrase. I studied at the at Ida Rolf's Guild of Structural Integration. That's a form of body work, but um, I feel like what you're providing is a guild for practitioners to develop their own individual way of practicing that's in a community, but it's, it's what they do in their practice of how, and what they, where the direction they go is self-driven versus a guild that's saying, you're going to start to see the three, three characteristics of, of, of whatever we want you to see in Buddhism. Um, you're not form, you're not pushing people to have, either a certain experience or to have a correct interpret a similar interpretation to their experience you're you're supporting this this internal development growth and transformation um that's self-led in a way and and it's you know in art it's like i mean i used to play jazz and i always people that listen to me know i always reference jazz at times but it's like there are jazz schools out there that now basically produce people sounding like everybody else and like the 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 tenets of how jazz was actually developed and 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 um, continued for a long time was was so much more like what you're teaching. It's like you find the, the sources of inspiration that you're drawn to, and and practice with those, and that becomes comes out in your own uh, sort of authentic individual expression. Right, and yeah, and uh, do our teachers as well. So it sort of starts, that's what the guild mm-hmm. is. People finding it mm-hmm. in their own experience, finding, yeah, that's our guild. I love that. We, we have a guild. <laughs> we have a guild. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know we're we're sort of coming close to our 60-minute uh, t- time, and we were holding the intention of keeping these a little bit shorter. Um, knowing that we're going to come back in in a little bit and have another conversation a few more conversations um is there anything that you would like to conclude with in this chat and is there anything you the second part part to that is is there anything you'd like to flag to make sure we kick like for listeners like oh we're going to come back to that next time is there anything to flag of where you'd like to explore next time and i have i have my ideas but I'm, i'm curious what you might have to say well, I, this is, we've been doing the very thing that, um, you know, that we do. I love, and what I love to do, which is have these conversations where we spark each other's ideas. So in a way, we've been modeling the whole thing in this mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, um, and I, the only, the, there's many things to come back to. And uh, I trust your um, discernment, Josh, um, but we will certainly should come back to how the Dharma, how we mm-hmm appears in people's develops in people's lives in this way and in their sittings well and and thank you nelly i um you know as i said offline before we started recording your book the conversation you have in your book actually inspired me around the podcast and this is this is the direction i want to take the podcast to have more ongoing conversations with practitioner friends of mine to, to have these kind of dialogues and, and, and mutual exploration. So, so thank you. Thank you for the book for sure, but thank you for the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. The book will be in people's hands, actually a hard uh, soft cover book in February is what mm-hmm. our hope is. Um, and I just looked at our table of contents before we um, met just to help remind me what we wrote. Um, But I noticed we wrote 20 pages about what develops in this practice. So I'd like, I'd like to mark that because that is a a lot of how the Dharma teachings are seen in experience. And um, we had a lot to say about that. So I'm sure we'll be able to do that again. Yeah, that's that's definitely a territory I wanted to get into. What is developing, and what I like about that, and because I've given a fair bit of thought to this to myself, like because you, you're selecting, I would say themes from the Dharma itself, from the from the traditional lists, and you're saying, well, these lists are developing, and this list is developing, and check it, and it, you know, again from the outside, if we come back to the way Nelly described the practice, get comfortable sitting. If you're not comfortable sitting, lie down. Close your eyes if you're not comfortable. With your eyes open your eyes. You know this very permissive approach, and just sitting with there, being curious about it, being receptive to it, and then spending some time reflecting on it. What 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 occurred for you? 
I know when I started, so this is this is where I am at now, my my own relationship to this kind of a practice. I know when I started, there was no way I would have believed any of the Dharma lists were going to develop that in this particular way. Having practiced it for several years now, I am as confident of any as of anything in my life that those qualities, those lists do develop in this style of practice in some ways, in my opinion, and I think you share it better than some of the other routes of getting there. Um, and so if we can have that kind of a, a chat, right. I love it. I think it'd be great. Um, so your book's out in February. And I, you know, on that note, um, congratulations on pulling that together. I, I, as someone who is trying to write a book myself, I <laughs> know the labor that is involved in that. The, and it's a labor of love. Um, but thank you for your effort and your labor and your work. And it's, it really, if I could say what, what I so much enjoyed about it again, it's, it, it's, it's like listening in. It's about having a cup of tea with two close Dharma friends, listening to what they're sharing and, and feeling the warmth of that friendship, literally, you know, it's a, it's a very warm book. It's, it, um, it makes the teaching and the approach to practice extremely accessible and um, if anyone's listening and has been frustrated by their own attempts to meditate in other systems, this is a, a, a really welcome uh, approach. So well done and thank you. Thank you for Great. having us on. This has been uh, quite enjoyable, actually. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that first installment of my conversation with Linda and Nellie. They'll, as I said, they'll be back on the show to further explore their approach to reflective meditation and see, we'll be talking next time, I think, more about what develops, what kind of qualities of the heart and mind develop within this approach to practice. And as someone who's been involved with this style of practice for a while, I can definitely uh, attest to the positive uh, qualities of mind and heart that do develop um, when you start to open and loosen up your practice in the ways that they suggest. So stay tuned for more conversations. And just today, again, if you are interested in this book, do head over to the show notes. There's a link for you to the publisher's page where you can pre-order a copy of Reflective Meditation for yourself. And um, I just want to thank you for your attention. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.